there was a job for an event manager at the Wells Fargo Center. And I was like, this is for me. I want this. I want this job. I'm going after this job. And I applied for the job and I didn't get the job. And I was a little, I guess, devastated yeah, was, the, sure. was the word. You know, I thought I'd been doing everything right and to the point. So I went to the general manager at the time and I said, I'd just like to know, you know, what happened? Why didn't I get the job? He walked in and said, you know what? He said, I just, when, when you interviewed for it, I didn't think you wanted it bad enough. Hmm. And so that probably sat with me. That still sits with me to this day. And I made sure from that point forward that I let people know what my intentions were and was okay. kind of driven towards, you know, making sure that I was doing the best I could. Mm-hmm. Welcome to The Climb. I'm your host, Michael Moore. Today, we sit down with a guy that checks a lot of boxes. Not only is he a friend, someone I can rely on, a client, but also just a really interesting individual that has brought uh, a lot of change and a lot of great things to Fort Worth. Listeners, welcome Matt Homan, President and General Manager of Trail Drive Management Corp, managing entity over Dickey's Arena that we're all learning to love and enjoy. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Excited to have you. So the whole mechanism behind Dickies is something we're going to dive into. But before we get to the pros and cons of public-private partnerships and how you went about setting all this up, let's dive into Matt Homan a little bit. Tell us about your background, where you're from, and what ultimately brought you to Fort Worth, Texas. Well, it starts when I was pretty young. I kind of grew up in the event industry. My dad worked for Ticketmaster for many years, and I grew up going to events all the time. I was able to go see them, but, you know, I really fell in love with kind of the event within the event and watching how everything happened and how everyone moved and watching event security and operations staff and guest services and stagehands and all the fun things that make up an event at a facility. And I started going probably every chance I could with my dad. I was probably six, seven years old, and that was an opportunity. And any event that was there, whether it was Guns N' Roses or tractor pull monster truck or a flyers or 76ers game was was always really exciting for me so i grew up in philadelphia just outside philadelphia it was from there when i was 16 years old my first real job you know i had a couple jobs working at sandwich shops you know doing dishes and things like that part-time jobs but my first real job when i was 16 years old i became the youngest member of the philadelphia ticket sellers union wow yeah which is kind of interesting at the time my parents were members of the union they worked in the box office and, and sold tickets at multiple events. My mom also worked at the time at the uh, Philadelphia Spectrum, which was home to the Philadelphia Flyers and 76ers, uh, was the original building down there. And I started working in high school at 16 years old. I'd drive about 25 minutes to into the South Philadelphia to go work, uh, selling tickets for events. And I was making $15 an hour at the time, which was just, you know, That's a, kid, a lot. kid in high school at yeah. 16, you know, that was in, you know, in the mid nineties, you know, that was, a, that was a lot of money for the, for there. So I was able to do some things like buy my own car, you know, and able to support myself and really pay for the things that I want to, those extras that I want to without asking mom and dad for money all the time. So, but I loved it too. And for me, it was just about experience and it was about, you know, experiencing those events kind of looking at the different events that were coming through and then getting to know people in the industry. So then I went to college at the, um, I started off at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. I went there for one semester and I totally hated it. Yeah. 
So then I switched and went to, after my first semester, went to the University of South Carolina. They both, I, both schools were what I was originally looking for in a college. They had a sport and entertainment management program. And that's what I knew I wanted to get into facility management. And that was where I wanted to be. So I went to UMass, probably for the wrong reasons, thought I needed to be closer to home and all that sort of stuff. And didn't really love the program at UMass. It wasn't for me. They started getting you into the sociology and psychology of sport. You know, what an athlete is thinking as they're getting prepared to, you know, in a, in a track meet. And that wasn't for me. I wanted to get into the business side of, of sport and entertainment. I thought that's what I really wanted to do. I thought that's where the future was going in our, in that industry. And uh, the business side was really what was really important to me. So I transferred after my first semester, went to the University of South Carolina, which was just starting their sport and entertainment management program at the time. The gentleman who started, Dr. Guy Lewis, was instrumental in me choosing South Carolina after my first semester at UMass. And uh, he was one of the pioneers of the industry and started the UMass program. So it was something that uh, I looked forward to. You know, it was a very young program, but it was very business oriented. And I thought that was really special. So I went down there, was there for, you know, finished in four years. Every summer, I, every time I came home through college, I had a chance to go work at the at the the Wells Fargo Center or the Philadelphia Spectrum, either or. They were both there at the time. At one point in time, we had two arenas in Philadelphia. Gotcha. And your dad was involved in both? My dad worked for Ticketmaster, so he okay. was separate at that time. At one point, Ticketmaster was owned individually by people, but then corporate Ticketmaster bought it back, and he was working for Ticketmaster in New York. So he was he was in the industry, but not really working at that facility or associated with that the ownership of the Spectrum at the time, which was Mr. Ed Snyder. Truly amazing story of Mr. Snyder. He was a uh, pioneer in the industry, was bought the Philadelphia Flyers by taking a second mortgage on his house in the in the early 70s. He was, you know, he was probably the ninth or 10th NHL team and built the spectrum with his own money and privately owned and then started a private management company called Spectrum, a global spectrum mm -hmm. was the private management company. But anyway, take it back a, a minute. You know, I went back. So I'd go back and from school, I'd come back and work uh, wherever I can. One summer I worked in a market in the marketing department. One of the marketing coordinators was out on a leave and I filled in for her. They called me, her name was Dot. and They, they called me Dot for a while, you know, <laughs> and just doing everything I can there. Another summer I came home and there was a roller hockey team that was started and they played primarily in the summer. And I was kind of for those hockey guys that were playing minor leagues, you know, at the time, the AHL, ECHL to do something in the summer, make some extra money. And they started this team called the Philadelphia Bulldogs. Well, I came in and said, I want, you know, I need a job. And they said, well, we got the job for you. And I said, great. What's it going to be? And they said, we're going to even give you a title. It's going to be the director of hockey operations. I was like, great. That sounds good. <laughs> Didn't pay much, but that was, it was good. It was experience. And I got to handle all the team's travel coordination of events, ticket sales, you know, kind of a little bit of everything. And dip my foot in everything I could to kind of just get more experience. Watching your dad, that was on the, the ticket side, but you were seeing sort of all sides of event planning, event management, attracting talent. Like you were starting to see it. And then the college piece sort of started weaving in the business side. Is that a, an accurate statement? Yeah, that's very accurate. And um, the college piece really just kind of started to tie it all together for me one point, I just thought it was a cool, fun job. I fell in love with the the concept that n no day was the same. You know, mm -hmm. you could be doing a hockey game one day and a Sixers game the next and and then doing monster trucks or concert 
the day after that. Saw some really cool things. You know, I was at the Spectrum working and you know, I was walking backstage when Page and Plant got in a fist fight. Oh, know? wow. You know, so see, you How see old were things. you? I was probably 19 years old. Okay. Yeah, I was probably 19 years old. So, you know, one of the one of my more fond memories of, yeah. of witnessing that. You're like, do you understand what's going on right now? That right. these guys are legends and don't like each other very much, you know? So, so who won? It was separated quickly by <laughs> security. But, you know, gotcha. it was fun to watch security come in and how to handle that situation and everyone else that gets involved. But it was always about, but the business side is what kind of drove me to where I am today. So after college, I started looking for a job. I pretty much knew I wanted to go back and work for at the Wells Fargo Center and start my career there. But I wanted to interview at other places because I always thought that that was something that was important. So I interviewed at three different venues. And one of the people said to me, they said, Matt, why are you here? And I just said, well, you know, I want to go through the interview process that they said, your career, you need to start in Philadelphia. You need to go start in Philadelphia. That company is growing. They're doing private management in other cities. And I said, yeah, I know, but I just want to go through this, you know, a couple of times. So I'm a senior, I'm looking for a job. Uh, Philadelphia called me and said, we have a job for you. And I said, great. And they said, we'd like you to come in and be working group sales. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> because for me at the time, you know, I wanted to get into management. And yeah. I thought, sales? I know nothing about sales. I hate cold calling people. You know, it's not for me. Right. It's not what I want to do. But I quickly got in there and, you know, and started, and started doing well. And my first year there, I think my base salary was, I think, like, 18,000 a year plus commissions. And you were making more per hour at 15 yeah. or 16, right? Yeah. 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 I, I was like, ticket, ticket selling is better than this, but I knew also what the long-term goal was. And so, yeah, so I took the job in group sales. I did well my first year. My second year, I was promoted to the assistant manager of the group sales department, which was, I got a bump in base salary by about $6,000. So okay. I'm making 24,000 base at this yeah. point. So, yeah. Now you're rolling. Going, yeah. Going great. And But we had a really good year that year. And the Flyers made it to the NHL Conference Finals. The Sixers made it to the NBA Finals that year, played the Lakers. Yep. We were selling at the time, you know, we were selling group tickets to, to everything, including Sixers games, Flyers games, you know, Disney on Ice, the Circus. But, you know, Sixers were doing really well, and we were selling these full club boxes. And this was, a club box was about 142 people. And at this time, pharmaceutical industry was still little wheels off and right. unregulated, so to speak. And you'd have pharmaceutical reps buying club boxes for 142 people and just spending money like there was no tomorrow. And so I was very fortunate in this. Yeah. So I probably, I was making some good money at that year. And then at one point in the year, probably before the finals, this was, yeah, probably, it was probably just after the January that year. There was a job for an event manager at the Wells Fargo Center. And I was like, this is for me. Yeah. I want this. I want this job. I'm going after this job. And I applied for the job and I didn't get the job. And I was a little, I guess, devastated yeah, was, the, sure. was the word. You know, I thought I'd been doing everything right and to the point. So I went to the general manager at the time and I said, I'd just like to know, you know, what happened? Why didn't I get the job? And he walked in and he said, you know what? He said, I just, when, when you interviewed for it, I didn't think you wanted it bad enough. Hmm. And so that probably sat with me. That still sits with me to this day. And I made sure from that point forward that I let people know what my intentions were and was okay. kind of driven towards, you know, making sure that I was doing the best I could. Mm -hmm. 
So from that point forward, that's kind of the, the direction I took. So about during the middle of the NBA finals, actually, someone, uh, the general manager called me because, you know, Comcast Spectacor had just started their uh, facility management division called Global Spectrum. And we're managing, you know, seven to 12 arenas around the country. They said, we got an event manager job for you. And I said, great. Here at the Wells Fargo Center, I'm excited. When do I start? He's like, no, 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 no. We want you to go up to Trenton, New Jersey. At, it's called Sovereign Bank Arena. And we'd like you to be the event manager at Sovereign Bank Arena. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I sat there and I thought about it. And I didn't think long because I knew this was the direction I needed to take. I need to get into event management in order to become the next level. And so I actually took, <laughs> and my wife reminds me this to the day, you know, I took actually what was a $20,000 a year pay cut, you know, after my commissions to go be an event manager at, in Trenton, New Jersey. Now, I was very fortunate I didn't have to move or anything because Trenton is just on the, you know, about 25 minutes north right. of Philadelphia. So, so I commuted every day, 45, 50 minutes, did a great job there, was there for about a year, year and a half. And at the time, our company had just been awarded the management of the new arena that they were building in Columbia, South Carolina. So I went to the the general. I went to the head of the company and I just said, "Look, I want to go down and work at that building. I want to go help open it, and you know, I'd like to be the AGM of that building." And they said, "Well, we 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 think you could do well there. You know, we we'd love to have you down there. We're going to put you down there as the director of event services, and so you manage all the events and you'll open the building. And it was such a great experience for me to go down there and do that. Plus, it was going back and living in the exactly. town. My wife and I, my wife, I met my wife in college and go back and live in the town we went to for college and a little bit more mature, have a little bit more spending money and could be a little bit different story there. Sure. So, so we moved to Columbia. I started off as the director of event services there. I was there for about three, uh, uh, probably about four years or so. Became the assistant general manager of that arena really ran the day-to-day operations of that building, in, which was such a great experience. It was a great college uh, facility. And was it there or when you were in school that you met one of our previous guests, Eric Kyman, that was AD at the time? It was actually there. So Eric came in as the athletic director uh, my last year there, and he came here from TCU. Yep. And uh, athletics was what actually built that arena. Uh, so we reported directly to the athletic department uh, as a private management company. So we had a we had a good relationship with Eric. Yeah, you know, it was uh, that's a awesome. small world how it all comes it back really together, is. you know. Yeah. And I think that that's great. That's one of the things about Fort Worth in itself. So I was there. Then I got a job offer to go to run the become the first GM, and I was going to be the youngest GM in Global Spectrum, and it was going to be at the Germain Arena in Fort Myers, Florida. And uh, I went and interviewed for it three times was selected, had two different flights to go down there and start running it, running the building. We had actually, my, my wife was pregnant at the time. So this is 2005. And we actually scheduled induction of our, having our daughter Caroline induced. So I could go down and then start, I wasn't going to miss that. And I could go start work. Wow. Well, as it turns out that deal fell through twice and basically went away. And then I was not given that opportunity to run that. So I was still kind of a little disappointed in that, that, you know, that fell through because I wanted to be a GM so bad. And I felt like at this point I'd, I'd been working really hard to get it. So about six months later, I was home in Philadelphia at my parents and I saw the president of Global Spectrum at the time, mentor and good friend. His name's Peter Luco, someone who I admire a lot. 
And we're talking and, you know, he said, oh, I'm sorry about Jermaine. You know, it was upsetting. I said, yeah, no big deal. You know, I'm looking for the next opportunity. He goes, well, what do you think of Des Moines, Iowa? Never been there. I don't really know where Des Moines, <laughs> Iowa is, to be honest with you. No, I was kidding. But I said, I don't know much about Des Moines, Iowa. He goes, I think, he goes, I think you could do really well in Des Moines, Iowa. And we need a GM in Des Moines, Iowa. So my wife and I went home and talked. And I said, look, I got to go take this opportunity. You got to go do that. This is really important to me and my growth and, you know, kind of where I want to get us. And um, so we, um, so I went and interviewed for a job in Des Moines. Interviewing in January in Des Moines is not always the, mm. the, the most luxurious of uh, interviews, just because it's so cold up there in January for about three months out of the year. It's a great place to live, great place to raise kids, but it is bitterly cold for right. about three months. So we went to Des Moines. I remember interviewing. The county was our administrator there. They owned the building. Our company had been there managing the building. The building had just opened in November, December. And our, our Global Spectrum had someone who didn't work for Global Spectrum in there as the GM. And I think that was the mistake they made. So I came in there as the second GM. But I remember interviewing that with the county, with county administrator. And she looked at me and she goes, you're younger than my son. Why should I hire you to run this building that we just invested all this money in? And um, I said, you know, honestly, I've been preparing this my whole life. And this is the opportunity. And I looked across the table and said, if our COO right there has the confidence in me to do it and to run one of the, our most important accounts, then you should too. Nice. And she, from there on, you know, it, it was great. And so Des Moines was interesting because it was two arenas. And two convention centers. One of the old, the old convention center, we then took offline and we remodeled the old arena, which was Veterans Memorial Auditorium, uh, into a, another convention center. Got it. And so it was all one complex up there. So it was really interesting. I was there for five and a half years. We had two more children born in Iowa, two boys. And then I was there and the company called me and said, Matt, we'd like you to come back and run the Wells Fargo Center. And this was the dream for me, right? At the time, I wanted to go. This is the building I grew up going to. I grew up, grew up going as a kid. It was so important to me to go. It was our flagship building, our corporate headquarters, back home to Philadelphia. I felt like, all right, great. We'd moved around a couple of times when we were young, and we knew we were going to have to do that in, in order to climb that ladder a little bit. But this was it. This, we're done. You know, we're moving back to Philadelphia to home. And my wife's from Virginia, so close, you know, closer proximity to her family. We said, this is it. This is where we're going to stay. And we were there for about four and a half years. Peter Luca was in charge of the company uh, for a while, and then he left the company. And when he left the company, Mr. Snyder, who I mentioned earlier, he also just recently, he had developed cancer and passed away. And Comcast came in. And Comcast came in and, you know, it changed definitely the dynamics of that facility a little bit, changed what the family mentality that that they had had for a long time. And it was just different. It wasn't bad. It was just different. Right. And so I'm sitting in Philadelphia for five and a half years. Actually, we were on vacation my, uh, with my family and we're coming back from vacation one day. And my wife says, well, what do you got in the office tomorrow? And I said, well, funny you should mention it. I'm actually going on this, this teleconference interview. She goes, what? I go, yeah, I'm going to go speak to some guys. They just asked to speak to me about some project they're doing in Fort Worth, Texas. She goes, that's great. I'm not moving anywhere. <laughs> Let me know how that works out for you. Right. So I went to this video conference and started to learn about this project and learn about what is now Dickey's Arena. Right. 
And this was this video conference that I'd never seen before. This was kind of before Zoom, before Teams or any of that, where I sat in, I went to this law office and sat in, had this virtual video conference and got asked a lot of questions, talked to by uh, two recruiters here here in Fort Worth. You know, it just intrigued me. This thought of this, they explained it to me about the proposition that went out to the voters and how this building was going to be built as a public-private partnership was something that'd been in the works for years. And now was the time for them to kind of step forward with it, you know, and that this building was going to open with little to no debt. Right. And I just said, what? How's that? I said, so why don't you go hire a private management company? We don't want a private management company. We want this to be a not-for-profit operation. So the only thing that, you know, the building could do with its net revenues at the end of the day is put them back into the facility. Mm-hmm. And I was like blown away by that. I mean, I was like, that's amazing. That's too good to be true. So I went home. Something you had never even heard of, even you spent that much time in the industry. Not with no debt like that, like it was set up here, like it was being set up here. No, I mean, there's a couple other buildings, World Arena in Colorado Springs, which is more of a U.S. Olympic training grounds Mm -hmm. facility, is a not-for-profit. And then a very good friend of mine uh, runs uh, Mecca, which is which is the county in Omaha, Nebraska, which runs the Quest Center in Omaha, which used to be the Quest Center in Omaha, the baseball field in Omaha, and the convention center in Omaha. That's set up as a not-for-profit as well, but they have a lot of debt associated with it. So, yeah, there wasn't much in it to, to that. And the way they, the way the recruiters got my name is, you know, they were talking, they, uh, two friends of mine had started their own business trying to do private management. And they were talking, they found out about this job, about this project, and they tried to talk to them into private management. They said, no, 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 we don't want private management. You know, what we're looking for is a GM that'll come here, grow with the project, grow into the community. And, you know, but who's who's run major facilities before, because we want to be a major facility. And they said, well, we know a guy, but, you know, he's run the Wells Fargo Center. I don't think he's going to move, but you know, you can be happy to talk to him and they passed along my number that way. So, which, which was interesting. So on that primary video call, it was just the two recruiters in you or was anybody else involved? In nope. Just the two recruiters in me. It. So and they asked me to come down. So this was probably late March, early April. And they asked me to come down and come in for an, a formal interview, which I did a couple months later. I stayed at the, I remember it vividly. I stayed at the Worthington. Walked down and had breakfast with the recruiters that morning, you know, kind of fill me in on how it was going to go, what, what was going to go on. And the one recruiter looked at me and said, well, I'm going to be honest with you. We've had two other candidates here. You're the third candidate. My horse just got to the gate. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a Fort Worth thing. Yeah, to say. Yeah. I just started laughing. I was mm-hmm. like, okay. I was like, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but okay, here we go. So, so I went and then sat down with multitude of people, people that worked for event facilities included event facilities, stock show, consultants, and Mr. Ed Bass was there as well. Mr. Bass was uh, part of that interview process. And we start talking. We just start talking about events. We start talking about different things that I've done in my career, where I have, where I've been, what my thoughts were. You know, I remember uh, one of the questions was asked. They said, well, you know, if you're starting this from scratch, what, what do you want to do? And I said, for me, it's about the customer experience. That's where it all starts. And that's what I want to drive home is that customer experience. So and any way to do that is to control all those customer touch points ourselves. And that's something that if I was to take this position that I would be strong, that I would strongly pitch is that we want to hold all those customer touch points within us. 
They said, well, what do you mean? So I, we don't want any outside vendors in there, you know, and I think it's really important for us to manage it, you know, the way that we want to manage it. And they said, well, what do you think about the food and beverage companies? And at this point in my career, I'd worked with all of them, mm-hmm. Spectra, Ovations, Aramark, Legends, Sodexo. And I said, honestly, to me, it's a lot of recycled junk. Mm-hmm. I said, because I do this every day in my job in Philadelphia is that I'm working with Aramark, but it's a struggle, you know, and we sit there and we'll talk about, and I use this as an example, it's a poor example, but one, hot dogs. And we'll sit there and talk about hot dogs and we'll taste test 20 different hot dogs. And the problem is you say, okay, well, that's the best hot dog. I want that hot dog. No, you can't have that hot dog. What do you mean I can't have that hot dog? That's why we're taste testing these to pick the good quality hot dog. Right. Well, that hot dog's not in our corporate portfolio, which means that they're getting kickbacks from their, you know, from the purveyor on the quantity of the hot dogs. And it just got frustrating. And I said, so if we want to do this and do it right, we don't need a capital investment of any sort from a food and beverage to finish out our kitchens or our concession stands, then we should operate this all in-house. As a matter of fact, I don't want to just operate food and beverage in-house, parking, it's guest services, operations. All of it, we want to be our in-house mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, then we own the responsibility to what's going on in the facility. We own the, what, the product that we deliver. And I thought that was really important at the time. And ultimately, that's kind of what we've done. So, so I was interviewed for this job. We sat, we sat around for probably about two and a half to three hours over lunch. I, I remember I didn't eat a, a darn thing. I got to the, I got to the airport and, <laughs> and called my wife with how excited I was about it. And I just said, this went great. This town is amazing. I really like this. I think there's a huge opportunity here because Fort Worth at the time was was growing, right? I've right. been here now six years. So, you know, this is 2015, oh, just a little over six years, I guess. So it's 2015. Fort Worth was growing, you know, and you could see that there was no entertainment, sports or entertainment facility here in Fort Worth. Right. The conventions had given up on that years ago, and rightfully so. They had their own model. They wanted to get hotel beds filled was was their primary goal not sports and entertainment so you know fort worth citizens had to drive you know 45 to 60 minutes to go see a show of any sorts over in dallas at american airlines center so i just saw this big opportunity there so i came home talked to my wife and i said listen we need to go you need to come with me and go look at this obviously talks took a little while this was probably you know this happened probably around May. And I said, you need to come down there and look with me. And we took a trip and, you know, she quickly saw it and she quickly saw what we were doing and the vision of where we could get this and what we could do in this facility. And so it was something, it was something that I kind of just fell in love with. Skipping back here a minute. You know, I remember also asking questions about this Mm not-for-profit because that was the biggest question to me. So, and I'd say to the event facilities folks, I'd say, so I don't understand. So how... (laughs) how's this going to work? And they kind of went through that public-private partnership and started explaining to me of how these public-private partnerships worked in Fort Worth. A great example was the zoo, right? some of the museums. And you started to see it and understand it. You said, wow, this town is definitely different than a lot of other towns that I've ever been to. And so I started to get really into it and understand it and try to follow it. Asked a lot of questions about the debt. How is this building going to open up with debt? And so for those of, that are unaware, the story is, and, and what happened was, you know, the city put up $225 million, right. and then the private sector came in and matched that $225 million, and then also said that we'll pay for any overruns and design of the facility 
on top of that. So before we get into the funding mechanism, because I do want to go down that path because it's really interesting and more about it than just about anybody, but a couple of the themes that came up along your climb that I want to touch back on. You know, you you mentioned that group sales position and, and hating cold calling. But then in one of your first interviews, you know, you didn't get it. And they said, well, you know, we didn't think you wanted it enough. Raising two daughters and, and one of which is her personality is a lot like mine. Yeah, we talk a lot about like sales is involved in everything. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're the librarian or the checkout person at Whataburger or running Dickies. There's a certain amount of sales and everything we do. So thinking back through that, you know, was that were those early sort of roadblocks helpful in eventually getting you to where you want to be? You know, it's funny. I have this conversation a lot with people that just start in the industry, especially someone that starts in sales. And I, I say sales was the last thing I wanted to do, but it was the best decision I ever got. It was yeah. the best thing that ever happened to me. And the reason being because, yeah, just like you said, sales is everything. I mean, every day I'm selling. I'm selling whether it's suites, sponsorships, selling why to come to Dickey's Arena versus going to American Airlines Center. Right. Selling why to come to Fort Worth, what it's going to bring to you. Sales is really, really important to me. And yeah, it taught me a lot too. And getting that door shut on you a couple times wakes you up. Yeah. It's funny. We had a, a sponsorship pitch that we did just recently. And I texted, you know, Brad Barnes is the head of the stock show sure. and rodeo. And Brad and I are very close with all of our sponsorships and, and packages and premium seating. We're all very tied together. And I'll get into that a little bit later on why, but it was very important for that. But um, but you know, I, I texted him that morning. I said, I'm excited about this today. Like it kind of gets Get you, get going, you going. Yeah. Exactly. And especially when an opportunity of a big deal is out there, you know, and that's really fascinating to me. And so, but sales is everything and it taught me a lot. And so I don't regret it one day. I think it was really important. I encourage my staff to try to get into the sales process. Mm -hmm. We have a little joke around the office. Rule one, everybody sells. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, simple rule one. Uh, we'll talk about rules two and three, but <laughs> 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 yeah, we'll we'll get to those in but, a minute. But no. no, yeah, but it it was it's fascinating. It really helped me get to where I am because yeah, when you walk in on that interview, you have to sell yourself. Well, and and you and I've talked about this too, just in in recruiting talent into our individual organizations. You know that there's just almost this mindset that they think they're going to get the job or they're going to get that promotion earlier than they thought, and the world just doesn't work that way. I mean, I look back at my career and I learned way more from failing than I did from winning and just retooling and that grit and that determination that if I get a shot again, you know, what am I going to do this time to make sure that I up my chances of, of winning. So I think that's, that's good lessons that, that more people need to really think about in life. Yeah, absolutely. You have to take it seriously Yeah, and you have to be able to, to sell what you can do and not just sell, the bag of BS. You got to right. sell. You got to sell the actual goods. And you know, we had an interview recently, and I was going through it. You know, we had a high position that we we're looking to hire, and the person that did the first interview process told me that this one applicant, you know, took the call from their car. Card. The phone dropped three times. It's not really taking it seriously. And I said, "Listen, because this was a rep referred 
person to the, to the organization. I said, listen, I want you to call them and I do want you to give them the feedback on why they didn't make it to the next step, mm -hmm. which was going to be an interview with me, that kind of final decisions side. And I said, I want you to give them the feedback. They deserve to know the feedback. Sure. And say, so you just didn't take it seriously enough. And so they did. They said, you know, our person looked at me. He's like, are you sure you want me to do that? And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I want you to do that because I don't want them to go ask the refer the referral of why they didn't get there. I want them to know why they didn't get there. And be ready for the next time. Yeah, exactly. The other thing you brought up was it was your early job. And I think you were the youngest, but just unions. I mean, that's just not a word you hear as often anymore. Is there still in your industry, is there a role for unions and, and just overall and U.S. and where our politics are today, what's the role of the union? I try to stay out of politics a lot, especially in my position. I bet. But yeah, unions are in the Northeast are very are still very carpenters union, electricians union. Is there a place for them? Yeah, sure there is in, in certain places, especially, you know, 20, 30 years ago when those, you know, workers were not maybe getting the fair benefits that they should. Right. Has it spun out of control in some of those situations? Absolutely. But there is a place for unions out there. It's, but it's got to work together for everyone. I remember consulting out at Lockheed Martin early job before I got into the insurance business. And we were filming a, making a commercial to have a promotional material for the Joint Strike Fighter, which was the largest defense contract in the world at the time. So they brought out all these actors and people with doing all the AV and you know, to make a commercial. Well, they were run by the union or they were part of a union. And I'd never seen anything like this before in like every 45 minutes, 15 minute break. And then they had to have a certain amount of food around. I mean, it was so regulated. And the business side of me was going, this is the most inefficient thing I've ever seen. I mean, no, no wonder these commercials cost so much to, to produce, but then in looking at like the enjoyment everybody was having and how happy everybody was, it was like, well, maybe there's a balance between that. You know, I don't, I don't know. There's definitely a balance and there's definitely still a need for them in certain parts of the, in certain parts of the country. Yeah. But yeah, there were some of the things that you just sat there and said, why is this? Right. I mean, that's just a stupid rule. You know, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make business sense, but you know, working, I mean, Working with the unions, obviously, and you know, union leaders taught me a lot too. Teach sure. you good negotiation skills yep. when you're negotiating contracts and working through all that. Whether it was the bus driver union, the ticket seller union in Philadelphia, basically every department was unionized yeah. in there. So it was something that we had to deal with there. But again, it, it taught me a lot. It was it was good to learn. You know, coming to Texas, didn't have to deal with some of those things as well. Right. But, you know, now, I mean, just based on where we are in labor, you know, there'd be some unions that, you know, if, if you, they have the power that could staff some of the things that we have that we would that we'd probably look at using them as sure. possible. So still a role. It just yeah. depends on the circumstances. Yeah. Okay. So you've gone through the interviewing process. You're starting to understand this concept both in funding and just politically within the the scope of the city and how this is all going to work and you decide and i guess the real boss here your wife said yeah we'll we'll give fort worth a try but how did how did it all start to come together well you know i, I, I there were some things i became frustrated with at my job in philadelphia okay. we were making 20 plus million dollars a year 
as a facility. And, you know, it was also a struggle to get people to reinvest back into that facility and to get money back into it. Mm. You know, asking for capital improvements. The building was at the time, I think, 20 some years old. Yeah, it was 20 years old, I believe, at that time. You know, it needed to reinvest more than a million dollars a year, $2 million a year. And really, our profits were offsetting some of the team losses Mm -hmm. at the time, the Flyers losses, you know, because NHL and NBA teams, you know, a lot of them are losing money every year, but they're appreciating every year at a quicker rate of what they're losing money. So so that's why the big corporations can, you know, continue to hold them. So there was a little bit of frustration with that. And then, you know, just kind of this concept that you could go down there and start this company and start this organization. And you know, I talked to a couple of the architects that were on the project at the time, and they kind of explained to me how this really was going to be a high-end facility. I'm a very visual person, so I, I heard it, but I don't think I listened to it very well. And, you know, started talking about the market, really doing market research and finding that void and just seeing it. I said to my wife, I said, this just feels like this is something that we have to go do. I said, our kids are young enough that, you know, we can move now. Like this project's going to take a couple of years so they can grow up a little bit. We can have them settled in one place and we don't have to think about that ever again. Yeah. And she loved the idea then. She quickly, she saw it. She saw how passionate I was for it. I got to come in and, you know, really start getting into operational decisions within mm-hmm. the building to make sure that the building was set up for long-term success. And so when you came in, I would think, a lot of the, at least the plan and the idea was there, but then it was really your job to bring everybody together. You mentioned the architecture firm, construction, the city, the Bass family and others and and kind of make it all come together and into reality. Yeah. Yeah. My first time down here, I came down for, I hadn't started yet. I started in August, I guess, of 15. Um, And then I came down here for a meeting in July. They asked me to come down for a planning meeting or an owner's rep meeting that they're having. I said, sure, I'd love to. Came down from Philadelphia, was here for two nights, uh, two days of meetings. I remember my first day wearing my black suit. You know, we're going around. It's July in Texas. And we go out and sit out on the, in the middle of uh, Gindy and Harley Street for about two and a half hours wow. looking at brick samples. And I was like, what are we doing? And it's really hot. And it's really, really hot. And at the time, you know, the trees weren't very full over there. So there's like one tree with a little shade. And I got my jacket on still sweating through it. And I'm just sitting there going, wow, this is hot down here right now. But that is the point. Des Moines, Iowa didn't sound so bad at the time. No, but that is the point you start to figure out the building and how great this building was going to be and how fine the finishes were going to be through the building. Because the point was, you know, we were going to be the bookend to the cultural district mm-hmm. and we didn't want to build a glass building in there. They wanted the building to look and feel like the rest of the cultural district there. So what we're doing is really taking brick samples and making sure it matched and blended in with the rest of, you know, Will Rogers and science and history and cowgirl museum and, right. and all those little building, great buildings down there. And that was the moment that you started to really say, okay, this building's going to be great. Yeah. Because the attention to detail that is throughout this building is going to be phenomenal. And I remember calling my wife that night. I said, honey, I sweat through my shirt. She goes, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to Target right now to buy some <laughs> undershirts out there because I got to do this again tomorrow. Yeah. But it was a great experience. And, and so I got to see that firsthand of what that was going to be like. So then I started in August. 
and started full steam ahead. It was meeting with architects and you know, we were talking about spaces and how they were going to be programmed and what the programming was going to look like, what we wanted as building operators. You know, one of the first things I came in, they, uh, we started looking at office space. There was like 19 offices. I was like, guys, I'm going to employ like right now we're at 78 full-time staff. Probably going to be when we're fully staffed, be closer to 92, 95. Mm -hmm. I was like, I need a lot more office space than this. So I had to come in and start to work on some office space under the, in the Simmons, what's now the Simmons Bank Plaza and Pavilion during the stock show, that was always intended to be where we put all the roughs, the rough stuff. So it was really important that that area was there for that with the proper flooring. I looked at Brad Barnes at one point. I said, Brad, what am I going to do with this building the rest of the year? He goes, I don't care. It's not my problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. And and so what I did is I came back in. I said, okay, we need to condition the space. So put heating, cooling in there. We need to put electrical outlets and water in there. So now we can use it as a small little exhibit space because it's attached to the arena. Now that is a hundred thousand square feet of prime exhibit space that we use. Wow. And, and we could actually program that space and the arena independently of each other. So I saw that vision. And then inside the pavilion, we actually put an operable wall in there. So, cause it's 10,000 square feet of contiguous space. And we kind of made that our little junior ballroom mm -hmm. and we'll do dinners in there. We've continued to do dinners in there. We're going to have a wedding in there. You know, it's different space that we can program throughout the year and gave us a little bit more of an opportunity in the future. That was important. Right. You know, making sure this building was set up for success. One of the prerequisites of the, of the job was, listen, you need to, this building needs to be self-sufficient though. Once this building is built, it is on Trail Drive Management Corp's responsibility to make sure that it's self-funded mm -hmm. because the private sector was making their contribution towards the arena and the investment and building of the arena. My job was to make sure that this thing made money every year and that we didn't have to go you know, back to the private side because part of that master agreement with the city of Fort Worth is that the city has no, will put no subsidy towards that arena whatsoever. Right. And so that was, that was something that was going to be a challenge. It was a little nerve wracking because you think this building could do X, but can it, and does it do that much money? And, you know, so there was a lot of challenges in that. So I had all the opportunity to set this building up for long-term success. And I had to make sure that we did that. Other things that we did, installing our own Wi-Fi system in there, installing our own DAS in there, which is a distributable antenna system. So mm -hmm. your cell phone works in there in large crowds. This was money that we put up front that we can go then and recoup back from those from the carriers got it and so that was profitable for us as well and that all dials into the theme of like controlling and perfecting the customer experience i mean you're nailing it you think about the type of brick that was used or when you walk in you look at the tile work on the floor the lighting or any other aesthetic piece anybody could have built that for far less but it wouldn't be the same experience when you walk in there, right? Yes, absolutely. You could have built this building for far less, but it wouldn't have been Fort Worth either. Right, exactly. And it wouldn't have been what that private sector wanted to see here in the facility. A tribute goes to Mr. Bass for having that vision of this facility in Fort Worth and what it could be. It's truly, I tell people every day, it's truly the nicest arena in the United States, yeah. hands down. And we have promoters that come in every day and say, wow, I, you know, I had a promoter in for Eric Clapton, who was here a couple of weeks ago, a good yep. friend of mine. And um, he said to me, he goes, Matt, I got to tell you, he goes, when you first told me you're moving to Fort Worth, I was like, huh, what's he doing? Mm -hmm. You know, he goes, after walking in this building and understanding it and seeing the market, he goes, I get it. Yeah. 
goes, it's worth it. And you made, you made a right decision by doing this. Well, and by the way, that Clapton show was badass. <laughs> it was good. We bought a bunch of tickets and went and had a really good time. It, was, was, it was unbelievable. It was really good. He rehearsed for a, a, a two days. They yeah. set up for three days and he rehearsed for two. And I can't, got to come watch one of them. And he was, he was sharp, which was great to see. So back to the public-private partnership, and then I want to just get into your mind of like day-to-day operations. So you get half from the private side, you get half from the city, and then how does it work? And how does funding mechanism give a return if there even is one to the private side and and then satisfy the city and what they're trying to do? Like, how does... How do the mechanics work? Well, let's, yeah, let's dive back into that for, for a second, talk about the city side first. So we'll talk about the public side. So I guess it was 2014, there was a vote proposition vote here in Fort Worth. Right. And basically it was a couple question proposition. Do you want an arena in Fort Worth? And, you know, overwhelmingly Fort Worth citizens said, yes, we do. And it was approved to do that through three taxes. So really there was no debt associated with that to the city's general fund, to their to their debt capacity, it was going to be done through a PFZ and a hot tax, and it was going to be through three taxes that we're going to do that. It was going to be a ticket tax. So every ticket you buy at Will Rogers or at the or at Dickey's Arena will have a 10% ticket tax. A horse stall tax, which is very complicated, and I can't explain that to you, but <laughs> <laughs> the stock show pays that horse stall tax, and any horse shows in the Will Rogers complex pay that horse stall tax. And does horse encompass every animal inside well, the stock show and rodeo you know or is what? it there, specific there was there was a lot of discussion about that but it does encompass pretty much every guy it's horse cows ties uh yeah it's it's every animal they just right. pick the tollest one and call it that <laughs> i think even chickens can get the tax on it <laughs> believe it or not got so, it and then a parking tax right. which the parking tax was going to be five fifty percent with a cap at five dollars per car okay. and so that's why we've paid parking down at at the uh, Will Rogers Complex and Dickey's Arena. So those taxes, you know, those taxes then, you know, reduce the city's debt. But it's interesting because they can then reissue debt once that's paid down significantly. And it can help with projects at Will Rogers and the convention center. So they created a, an event facilities deserves a lot of credit for creating that taxes. Mm-hmm. And they are the ones who kind of went to Austin to kind of help with these taxes and implement this for the city. Event facilities did a great job and spent many of years really putting this on a platter for the city of Fort Worth. And event facilities is a nonprofit organization as well, set up prior to Dickies, but to run a lot of the existing public-private partnerships you mentioned before. What's the role? They were of actually, event facilities was actually a support organization of the stock show because the stock show never owned any land, right? And never developed anything, and event facilities was that arm that supported that and it developed some land. So they own a couple lands, a warehouse and some other parking spaces that the stock show uses during the uh, stock show. Got it. Okay. So event facilities kind of start putting these ideas together and really put on paper. And either, even though, you know, we sit here and say that, you know, the private sector matched that 225 million, I can assure you the private sector went well above and beyond that 225 million to put all of Dickey's arena in place of where it is today. Got it. And that's the truly incredible thing and the philanthropic side of Fort Worth that just goes untold. Yeah. And it, it's truly a great story uh, led by some incredible people. And obviously, Mr. Bass is, is one of those persons. Yeah. Got it. So now you've got it 
up and running. I remember going to the groundbreaking, the ribbon cutting, some of the first events there. Then I want to throw two words at you. Terroristic activity and COVID. Two things you could not possibly plan for in all of the different roles that you've had. Who would have thought what happened in Vegas became a thing? I don't even like talking about it, but we're going to. And then you get this worldwide pandemic just as you're getting things up and running. So put us in your mind for a second as how you think through those knowing what you know today. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously 9-11 changed a a lot of our world as well and security in our world. And things started to change and, and develop and become more real. You know, what happened in Vegas is just obviously a tragedy. And you have to be conscious and not just Vegas, you know, what you saw at the Ariana Grande uh, concert over in England. I mean, you start to see these things and that was all in our minds when we were preparing for Dickie's arena. You know, we had to go in to make sure that we were set up properly. You know, we take it very security, very, very seriously. We'd like to think that we operate as close to an NFL, NBA, NHL facility as anyone does in the country mm-hmm. would not associate with one of those leagues. So we have best practices. Our director of operations who oversees security, Bill, Bill Shaw, came to us from Soldier Field in Chicago. Our security manager came to us from, from Chicago as well, where he worked for Monterey Security, doing all the major festivals, Lollapalooza, major, all the major arenas, was a consultant to the NFL, uh, has a really good background. So security is something that's very, very important to us. And we put a lot of procedures in place to make sure that that the building is as safe as possible. We are a 51% alcohol building. So that means you cannot have open carry uh, in the facility. And that's right. well posted and documented everywhere. That was something that was really important to us as well to make sure that we couldn't have a, you know open carry. And then a lot of those operational pieces, whether we we put bollards in places that people wouldn't think about putting bollards in, that took away a little bit from the architecture, but ensured the safety of the facility was going to be there for a long time. And and so we're constantly doing training sessions with our staff. We're constantly learning, trying to find best practices in our industry to make sure that we are on top of it because it's something that you have to you have to pay attention to and you have to watch every day. COVID, it's a whole nother story. <laughs> We opened in November of 19. We're open for six months. We're about to start the men's basketball tournament for the American Athletic Conference, which we host. And that Thursday morning, as we were getting ready to open doors, the commissioner and I and a couple of the athletic directors sat in a room downstairs and we're talking and just decided we can't open the doors here. And that, you know, we have to do our part and, you know, cancel the tournament. And then everything just canceled right after that. And shutdown began you know we closed until august of that year you know we opened back up to a limited capacity in august and from there forward we were probably one of the busier arenas in the united states and we were doing trying to do events as safe as we could we're very conscious about what the guest experience was because that was really important to us so you know mask mandates in the beginning Mm -hmm. obviously adding plexiglass in a lot of places creating you know non-touch point point of sales was all very important to me i'll say that Probably my whole career, the proudest thing that I've done in my career, though, is I did not furlough or lay off one person in the organization. That's awesome. And that, wow. yeah. And I, that goes, when I took the job, one of my biggest questions was, well, I've never worked for a nonprofit before. You know, I've always worked for a for-profit. Right. How does that work? And what does that look like? And, you know, what does reporting to a board look like? I've, I've never done that. I've had a boss, never had a board of, you know, board of directors. And. And that's the advantage of working for a not-for-profit right there. 
is because we look at the greater good. We look at where the building is, what we've done. And we had an incredible first year financially too. We had George Strait twice. Right. And it was great. We had a couple of concerts, you know, and we had a stock show. And, you know, so we had, we had some good momentum in, in what we were doing. And um, I went to the board and we talked about it. We talked about our cash flow, our cash positioning, again, because there was no private side that was helping us with money at this point. Mm-hmm. This was trail drive management is open and self-sufficient. And I said, here's where we're at. Here's where we can get to. I think, you know, obviously we started, you know, in March, we thought we'd be doing events again by June, you right. know, and June became July. July became August. And, you know, then it was just a little bit here, a little bit there, but we were doing enough to kind of keep it going and showed the long-term plan of how I could keep, how I could do this without eliminating any staff or furloughing anyone. That's the advantage of, because in our industry, everyone was furloughed and let go. And there were four people working at buildings. Right. And I think a lot of our staff knew that. So they appreciated it. Even though we weren't in the office every day, we were, everyone was working hard. Gave us Gave us a good chance to reset at that point too. Because once you open those doors, those first couple months, those first six months, it's hell, right? Yeah, There's a lot going yeah. on. There's a lot of events. You make a lot of mistakes. We weren't perfect in the 2020 rodeo, but this gave us an opportunity to sit back, understand where we had our, our mistakes and get better here for the future. And now I'd like to think that we're getting ourselves in a better place for the future. And I think a little bit of that is because we had that pause with COVID. So being able to retool and really think about the the wins, certainly bumps in the road that nobody could have anticipated and and just bumps in the road for any new operation, doesn't matter what industry you're in. Knowing that now, if you're talking to promoters looking to place events, corporations looking for places to to spend their money in the community, or just the general public looking for a good time, like what's the value proposition of Dickies and, and Fort Worth and why it's so great? Well, I think one is you walk in and you walk into a, a beautiful facility that people are proud of. Yeah. And I think because it's the citizens of Fort Worth facility, right? You know, this is a, it was a true public private partnership and the city owns this building at the end of the day, it was gifted to the city of Fort Worth. That's very important to know because, you know, so the citizens own this building for me, it's a variety of events too. Mm-hmm. I want lots of different kinds of events. And yes, we're open for six months and then closed and then reopened, limited capacity. And now, you know, we've been at full capacity since May, since, uh, you know, I guess, yeah, May. It's a variety of events that we can host different things. You know, we're going to do graduations there. We're doing family shows there. We're doing concerts, you know, but it's not just country music or classic rock. I want R&B concerts. I want rap concerts. One of the events I was looking forward to right before COVID was we were going to host The weekend, Yeah. Which was going to be our first pop concert. And our first true pop concert. And it was actually being played back to back. They were playing Dallas one night and us the next night. And that's where my vision always was with concerts here in Fort Worth is that, you know, you didn't have to pick whether you wanted to play American Airlines there or Dickey's Arena. Initially, I knew that's going to be what happened and that's going to be what people did. But as time goes on and we show it through marketing and ticket sales and ticket reports, Fort Worth is a big city and it acts like a big city. And so you can play both big cities and be successful. And we, we proved that when we went on sale at the weekend, we were one of the top five to seven markets that actually went on the on sale. Wow! So that's showing you right there that we can do those things and do them with Fort Worth. There's going to be more of those shows, but I was excited for that one because it was going to lead to more. They're starting to see those start to lead up now for 22, where we're going to see that again. 
So that's that's one. It's the variety of different types of events. It's having something here in your backyard, right? It's having something that you don't have to drive an hour for. I mean, I've done it. You've taken, I know you've taken your daughters over to concerts at American Airlines right. Center. You know, seven o'clock show, you leave here at 5.30, you know, don't come back till midnight. That's a long, it's a long day, right? Too long. Yeah. Yeah. And so to have something here that you can be proud of, and then knowing at the end of the day that this is truly one of the nicest arenas in the United States from, you know, the last seat in the building to the first seat in the mm-hmm. building. It's, you know, they're all the same, you know, our upper bowl, what we call our gallery levels, right. only eight rows. Yeah. Our last row of seating to the floor is the same distance as American Airlines Center's platinum level seating to the floor. Interesting. So what they sell is their best seats in the house. It's truly our last row of seating in the arena. Yeah. Wow. So thinking about ticket sales, and there's obviously a lot of pent-up demand now. People are ready to get back out and have fun and travel and kind of get back to some normalcy. Ticket sales always is very interesting to me and, and give us some insight into just the brokerage business behind that, right? Because there's the ticket sale that that I can go participate in because we're seasoned ticket holders. And then the companies get involved and market those tickets and then supply and demand takes over and all of a sudden the $50 ticket is $500. How does that work and where is it headed? Secondary market is something that just don't always know where you get your arms wrapped around it or your head around it for that matter. It's interesting though, right? I mean, it's obviously the only safe place to buy tickets in my mind is from the venue itself right. or the venue's authorized re- you know, resale provider, which in our case would be Ticketmaster. Stay with Ticketmaster. Yeah. You know that you have a deal there. You know what's going to be legitimate. So many times you feel when someone gets burnt by buying tickets from one of these other websites that you just you say, why'd you buy tickets from there? You know, right. because I want my, because my kid wanted to go see Ariana Grande and I had to get tickets. And, it, you know, that's the mistake that people make. But it's interesting because where is it going? You, you just don't know. You know, obviously people, there is pent up demand right now. There's also a, a population of people that are no showing for events right now, too. That, you know, Michael Buble, for example, was the show that we recently had. Mm-hmm. We had over 20% no shows for that event. And it wasn't people that, you know, people had a chance to refund that ticket up until the day of the concert, up until the concert started, really. And it wasn't people coming in and asking for refunds. They were just not showing. Usually with any concert we used to have, you know, pre-COVID, you'd expect maybe five, 600 people that might not show up for whatever reasons. But out of 14,000, that's a much smaller percentage, right? But, you know, for that, it was, it was shocking to see that. I was stunned. And that was our first incident of seeing that, you know, even Clapton, we didn't see that, you know, but Clapton went on sale after COVID when we were coming back home. Same thing with Blake Shelton, which just went on sale, which was a fabulous concert. What an entertainer he is. Yeah. Whether you love country or you don't love country, that was a great concert. And he went on sale and we didn't have any of those no-shows because he went on sale post-COVID. But, you know, see that out of a show was was alarming. So you start to think a couple things. One is, is there really that many people that just bought the tickets and just didn't care and said, no, nah, I, I don't want my money back or I'm, I'm not going to go to the show? Or is there that many people that that two years ago bought the tickets. Cause remember that show was on sale two years was re- rescheduled twice due to COVID. Got it. And, or is it that that many people that brokers were buying those tickets, ticket scalpers or brokers and buying those tickets and then reselling them. Mm-hmm. And they were just getting stuck with. It. And so you sit there and start to wonder what that number is and what that true number is. And it's, it's tough to find out. It's tough to understand where that is, but you know, there's people that are willing to pay a price for, for, 
ticket and to go out there. I mean, you can look online, you can always find a ticket somewhere. It's just a matter of how much you want to pay for it. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, friends that were looking at football tickets this past weekend, my advice is wait, the brokers are going to come down. Wait, as long as you can, as long as you can physically do it by yourself without driving yourself crazy. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, look, and those prices will come down day of show in most most scenarios, just depending on what the supply is out there. But it, it's definitely a supply and demand game. You know, I think brokers are a little bit more nervous now post-COVID, just different parts of the country of what they're willing to invest in to buy those tickets uh, and how many they're willing to invest in. You know, and there's people that are season ticket holders that buy tickets and then resell them, you know, mm -hmm. and they have the right to do that. You know, we you know, part of our agreement with them is they have to resell them on Ticketmaster as a verified ticket resale. Got it. And as long as they do that, that's fine, you know? And I had a friend ask me today, he said, I can't go to my, you can't use my, you know, KISS concert tickets this week. And I said, you might want to look at going on Ticketmaster. I bet you, you can make a few bucks. On them. Yeah. And just because the demand is down, you know, we have less than a couple hundred tickets left. And, you know, he had great seats, I think, on the floor. And I was like, be a good, you probably can make a few bucks because mm -hmm. people are looking to spend it. Now, as long as you're smart when you do it, you know, I mean, if you sit there and put it at three X, the value of what you paid for it, you're probably not going to get it. Right. But if you look at what everyone else is selling it for, you can find a number that you're still going to, you can't use your tickets, but you can make profit. Off Got of. it. So in, in other trends in the industry, you know, thinking through like technology and AI and, you know, in-person versus virtual events. And does that threaten what Dickies is doing long-term? Does that keep you up at night or is it just another outlet for people to enjoy and experience, but it's, it's never going to dampen or, or create a, a new supply chain that, that dampens yours? Yeah. I don't think it'll ever dampen ours. I mean, I think it was great during COVID for artists to stay connected to their fans. Right. I, I mean, but you know, look at your kids. I mean, they can get whatever content they want on YouTube or wherever for free. Yeah pay for that down the future i don't think is great there's driving concerts some of them did okay but they weren't profitable to the artists that much it was mm -hmm. a, it was more of a way to stay in touch with your fans so i, I don't see that coming back and taking over our in industry i mean people want to see a live event they want to feel that energy and that sound that's in there by being there yourself i don't see how you can duplicate that mm -hmm. i think there's some good things that came out of it though you know some of these drive-through exhibits. I think some of them are neat. Some of these other exhibits that you can, you could bring in and space out timings of people to limit capacities in there. I think that's interesting, but I don't think live music ever goes away to a virtual, not in, the, not, not in our lifetime yeah. right now. Yeah. I just think that too many people want to hear it, feel the energy of the crowd. I mean, I'll tell you what, when Clapton was our first show that we did in 569 days and that energy when he came out on stage oh, and yeah. you feel out of the crowd. I mean, that's something that you can't replace. And it wasn't even like, I mean, you're describing it perfectly because, you know, Clapton's not Kiss, right? Or some loud, super jumping up and down mosh pit kind of show. But the energy of that, even though a lot of times people were sitting down because this was a show that you watched, right? Not yeah. jumped up and down and danced to. That, that energy was unbelievable. And you can't replace that. Michael Buble, the same way. Yeah. Whether you're a fan or not, live music is great. Yeah. I mean, and a fan of the artist or not, live music is great. It's so entertaining and so, so fun to be a part of it. I mean, you know, I go back to when we had that first, you know, what that Black Keys concert, you know, that was, a, you know, one of the first concerts we did, public concerts we did where we sold tickets. I mean, the energy in there with Modest Mouse and Black Keys. Yeah. I mean, you think about 
what's going on and, you know, and, and feeling those people all excited to see that it's just hard to duplicate. So we're, we're talking a lot about the, the artist music side of it. It is a multi-purpose arena and some other things I've been thinking about just putting myself in your shoes, like everything that's going on in college sports now and, and being able to pay players, not just at the collegiate level, but even down below that, and you being a host to collegiate events, how does that change how you think about it? I mean, you can spend dollars maybe differently. I don't mean to be putting words in your mouth. I'm just thinking if you want to promote a college event, you can do that differently than you used to be able to. Is that something you're thinking about and where's that headed? Yeah, college sports is really important to us. You know, it's been a big part of our programming since we opened. Even during last year in a limited capacity, you may have recalled, we we announced that we did uh, Gonzaga versus Virginia and we did it on like 10 days notice. Yeah, And uh, what a great basketball game to see, you know, the future national champion there exactly. as well. But, you know, the, the thing that does, that we're all still learning a little bit about this is the marketing that you can do now. And so we're in some discussions with some of the games that we have coming on about getting players to go do promotional events at, you know, with our corporate partners and, you know, really start to cross promote them. And some of the, there's some weird situations that sometimes you can pay them, sometimes you can't pay them, but you can give them like gift cards to places and, you know, you can trade out things for them. So really learning that is, it's complicated. You know, one of the Actually, one of the gentlemen who oversee it at TCU told us that's his full-time job right now is just dealing with NIL right. uh, information and getting people the appropriate things you can or cannot do. So it's really something that is just getting started. You know, we've all heard the you know groups about you know around that have, you know the kid from Alabama, you know, offensive line, defensive lines that are getting dollars. You know, it's interesting to see how this happens. Some of these kids you know want nothing more than a couple pairs of sneakers. You know. But I think it's good for the sport. I think mm -hmm. it's good for the kid because it's not, it wasn't totally fair, in my opinion, to have these kids, you know, doing so much for the university and, and them struggling to have, you know, their parents make it to the regional game. You know, how does, you know, some of their parents can't afford to do that. Right. You know, so I think things like that really kind of help college sports. It'll be interesting to see, you know, where this takes college sports along with this. And then, you know, what you see in, with some of these teams relocating from conferences to, you know, the SEC, right. obviously a South Carolina guy, I'm a big SEC guy, but understanding, you know, what that's going to mean to college sports in the future. No, that's a good, I mean, I'm, I'm a UT guy, so I'm part of it and I'm excited at the same time I live and breathe and love Fort Worth. And I'm worried, I think TCU is going to always be fine, but you, you worry about what the big 12 ultimately looks like. And is that football experience that they've worked so hard to create and have created. I mean, there's not a better place to go watch a football game. Does that stay if they don't have the same teams coming in? Yeah, that's the big unknown, right? right. And is does it become super conferences? Right. You know, I think that's, there's discussions of that. And even the leagues, you know, as you talk to, and I'm friends with some guys in some of the different leagues, and, you know, they're saying, you know, we just got to wait and see how this all plays out. No one's quite sure yet, right, with that. So it's going to be interesting. I think that the next two to three years, I think, are really going to define that and define what happens with the NCAA and where they go. Obviously, we're hosting many NCAA championships. We got the NCAA gymnastics championships. Mm -hmm. We got the NCAA basketball this year, first and second round. Tickets but, go on sale uh, soon. They're right. On sale. right now, we're in pre-sale now. But at the end of the day, to me, 
what I want to do at all those events is I want the great student athlete experience. Yeah. Because that's what they deserve. They're they're in a championship. They deserve to come into the finest arena. They, they deserve to have a great experience and them to feel like that there's something special out there. Because, you know, and we've all seen the commercials. Not all of them are going to go to the NBA or going to go in their profession sport, you know, or the NFL, you know. They're all doing it right now and they're doing it for our entertainment. They deserve a little bit more along the way as well. Love that. You know, and thinking back and in, in getting to know you when you and your family got here, Matt, I, I don't know that I've seen anybody work harder to accomplish what you've accomplished. So I'd just like to say thank you. I mean, it, the bumps and bruises and unexpected twists and turns and to now be able to go back and see concerts and get ready for rodeo season, it's just it's a testament. And and one of the things we were talking about before we went live on the podcast was just hiring talent. And and I've gotten, I'm building a brand in Fort Worth, just like you are. Finding good people is really tough. I've had the privilege of meeting many of your people and working with them and you're nailing it. They're incredible. But talk about that hiring talent piece right now, trying to bring people back into the workforce it's an unbelievable stat that you didn't lay off one person during all of this, but how, how does that work now going forward and, and what are you looking for? Well, you know, I think starting the job, it was very important to me to hire the right people. And, you know, I started with a good director team that I brought in. You know, I've talked about Bill Shaw, my assistant general manager, you know, Julie Marglin, who's my director of food and beverage, came to us from uh, Anaheim where the, you know, the Anaheim Ducks play. Nicole Epps, my director of finance, came to us from Philadelphia. So I was able to kind of start assembling a great team kind of Mm -hmm. as we got here. When we hit the wall of COVID in March of 2020, that's where we started to start to freeze. And then we just obviously knew we knew that we need more talent. When we first started, when we opened the building, we had about 1,300 part-time staff in all of our different departments, food and beverage, parking, cleaning, operations, event security, event ushers, ticket takers, box office. Right now we're at about 800. Mm-hmm. Any given night for a full event, I'm close to probably two to 250 people working in the building. So as you imagine, you know, as that number's closer to 800, it's not a lot of margin there. So it gets really, you know, getting those people in there has been a challenge. And we've been working, trying to do job fairs, doing right. incentive opportunities for employees. A couple of years, you know, a couple of weeks ago, months ago, we'd hear, oh, it's all going to change when the government subsidies stop. Well, that stopped and nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. We're talking to employees about how can you get friends to work here? You know, what, what can you do to bring people? How can we incentivize them? It's going to be an uphill challenge. And I don't see that changing in the next couple of months on the part-time staff. The full-time staff is similar. We're not putting in, I refuse to just hire someone to hire a body to put a body in there to do it. That's not what we do. We want someone to fit in well with our team. We, we go through multiple interviews on all of our full-time staff to make sure that they're a good fit uh, and that we're not putting, you know, a round peg in a square hole, right. so to speak. So it, it's, you know, the culture is really important to us. We want to hire good people. I My philosophy is a, as a president and general manager is hire p- good people, let them do their job. Mm-hmm. But the part-time staff is, is, it's tough right now. And I wish I had a magic ball to see how that could how that could change and what we could do to to help it. We're trying all these different online platforms, InstaWorks, different groups to come in, nonprofit groups to come in and run concession stands as as a piece of their, you know, of the, so they can make some money. We're trying everything we can right now. 
but it, it's tough. And I think all businesses, obviously, we see it every day. You know, I had to, I tell this story, I had a discussion with my daughter, you know, it was early August and we went into a restaurant to have dinner and you know, she looked at me and, you know, she's a junior in high school and said, dad, what, you know, they got plenty of tables. Why, why aren't they sitting anywhere? I said, well, Caroline, look how many people are actually working right now. Right. And as I count the servers and the bar staff and the waiters, she goes, there's five. I go, this place seats like 200, mm-hmm. 250. I was like, so it's a challenge for all of us. And I wish I knew what was going to change that, but it's just, there's a piece of me that thinks that a lot of people don't want to come in the hospitality, back to the hospitality world anymore. I think that's a piece of where my mindset is right now. And, and, you know, we are certainly, uh, you know, in the hospitality industry. That's an interesting point. I mean, a lot of the hospitality industry is part-time work. I mean, is there a shift or a, a pathway where you could make, you'd have less, but you'd have more full-time employees could, they could feel like they were connected always, not just when you needed them or how would that work? Yeah. I mean, we, we've actually looked at that and, and talked about increasing our headcount a little bit because of that in certain mm-hmm. positions, whether it be staffers or you know, people that are doing just staffing along the way. Yeah, I think there is. But you know, at the end of the day, you don't need a full-time usher or a full-time usher that's going to be there and just work you know, 16 hours a week or 20 hours a week. And you know, during the rodeo, they might work 60 hours, but you know, that's not year round, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it's something that we, we try to balance every day. I think I'd like to see a lot more of the, there's college kids coming out and working. You know, I think that's the avenue that we need to push. So we're, you know, pushing it, you know, TCC and, you know, and all, all the local universities to try to get some of those kids out here. You know, there was recent concerts where we we're calling college fraternities saying, Hey, you guys want to come sling beer, you know, and I'm going to guarantee you $200 cash at the end of the night to, right. to come sling beer for a night and still struggle. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's just, it's unfortunate right now, but you know, I, I feel like we, we are able to mask those challenges that we have right now. And I think that our team's doing a really good job of doing that. I'm very proud of where this team is and where we've come from. Because at the beginning, you know, when we first reopened, you know, in August, it was, you know, our part-time staff was even less. And we're doing all these job fairs and you'd have, you know, 50 to 75 people sign up and you'd have 12 show up at the job fair. Mm. And it was just demoralized. Yeah. Yeah. And it was tough on the staff. So thinking forward three years from now, five years from now, I mean, what keeps you up at night? What's on your radar? What are you worried about? Well, you know, obviously... We were very successful. We were successful financially our first year. Uh, the second year, we're going to be somewhat successful even through COVID. It's continuing to make money and continue to reinvest and invest in the in, in Dickey's Arena. The other great thing is that if we get this arena to operating really well, we can start investing in other projects at the Will Rogers campus as well. Right. I think that auditorium has some great potential out there. The old Will Rogers Auditorium, they used to have a lot of great shows in that auditorium. I think my dad saw the Stones there in like the 70s or something. I, I think he yeah, I'm pretty know. sure he yeah. said that I mean, the first time he there, came and visited me in Fort Worth. There's some great history there, and yeah. it's got some great bones in it, too. Right. Yeah. But it does need some TLC and some some ways to catch up. You know, there's nowhere to buy a beer in there. Mm-hmm. This year during the stock show and rodeo, we're actually going to program concerts in there. We did it uh, in 2020. We did a foreigner show and right. two other shows. I think we're going to do about eight or nine shows in there this year. And cool. so I think there's a great opportunity of us in the future, potentially trying to reinvest dollars and partnering with someone like the stock show and also 
uh, the city and doing a private public private partnership and reinvesting money in that auditorium to start doing great live concerts again. Because as you start to think about it, you're going to have a club that's going to pop up in the stockyards. That's there's no doubt about that. That's coming in the next year or two. I would mm-hmm. say you have a club, you have a theater, you have an arena, just like the other big cities do. In Dallas, you can go over how many clubs. You know, there's plenty of clubs and there's plenty of theaters to go see different size of bands in there. Right. And you know, in Fort Worth right now, it's really Billy Bob's and the arena. Yeah. So it's five thousand capacity, and you know anywhere from you know eight to 13,000 capacity. Yeah. You're missing that 2,800 seat theater type show that I think could be really cool. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a great opportunity to that here in the future that we'd like to see that continue to grow. I want to continue to see the city put money in Will Rogers. I want to see the city, it's planned for the convention center and that convention center to get remodeled. Right. Our organization is, as a nonprofit, the only thing that we can do, our purpose is to lessen the burden of government. So the only thing we can do as a company is really is manage a city-owned facility. And so you think about this, if private management will start to come back and play with the city for the convention center or for Will Rogers campus, would you rather invest in a company from Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, my former company, a public-private management company that you're going to pay a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to go manage that? Or if you have the established professionals here in the city pay that organization knowing that the only thing that organization could do with its money that you're paying them is reinvest it in the properties that you own. Yeah. So pretty That's much a great point. So that was, again, I take it back to the vision of Mr. Bass and of setting up this not-for-profit. It was ingenious. Yeah. And, you know, it's there for not just the citizens of Fort Worth, but the city of Fort Worth to take advantage of. They've had so much, so many other great partnerships private public partnerships that I think we could be another one of those. Now you bring up a great point and I think it's, you know, at least for our local listeners, it's something to really think through. You know, I've been going to that cultural museum district since I've been in Fort Worth since early two thousands. It's one thing to go walk around and enjoy the architecture or the art or the experience or the food or the rodeo or now Dickies. And it's another thing to really think about how that all came together. And there's not, many cities in the world and local politics and very giving families that could could pull something like that off. So we're damn lucky to have it. Yeah. It's I you know, I've lived in a couple other cities and I've never seen a city like this. Yeah. And it, that's what makes Fort Worth special. And that's why I love Fort Worth. I mean, that's one of the reasons I love Fort Worth is to see how the city and the public and private sector work together for the better good of the city. You know, and it's exciting to see what's going on out there. I think there's going to be lots of development on Montgomery Street in the, in the near future as well. I think you're going to continue to see that. You know, I walked into the, had a great meeting with uh, Jonathan Morris and his team at the Hotel Dreis. Yeah. And uh, it was extremely excited to see that project finally come in play. He was telling us how, how great it is when we have events at the arena and, you know, their occupancy is going up. Really excited to see the new Crescent mm-hmm. Hotel. You know, we need more hotels in Fort Worth as well. Right. You know, and so... I want to see those local businesses and those big businesses come in and all survive together. I think that's really, really important. So no, that, that's more. how we win. Yeah. Right? I it, mean, you're, you, you've nailed it. So thank you for joining us. I want to wrap it up with a, a question that we ask a lot and I'll pose it this way. So there's the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And then we turn around and say, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. And I've noticed a lot of passion 
in the way that you speak about your team and your employees and the people that you work with and the battles that y'all have been through in a very short period of time. What do you want them to know about Matt Homan? Ooh, that's a good one. You know, look, I'm a person that I'm a people person. I love interacting with people. I love my staff. I love what they've helped create. You know, I brought them all here on a lot of them here somewhere in the market and on this vision of what we could build here. Mm-hmm. And we scratched the surface. We scratched it hard until March of 2020, getting them to stay with us and see the long-term vision of where this is going to go and what we can do here in Fort Worth and the positive experiences that we can bring. We're like no other arena in the United States. We all care about our jobs every day. I mean, that goes from the person that, you know, is bringing you in on parking, you know, to the concession staff, to the cleaning staff. Right. There's a a big sense of pride with what we do. And I'm proud that I was able to help create that culture of what what we're a part of. Wouldn't do it without my team, though. I mean, they were the ones who that that spearheaded a lot of that project. I was just there to kind of guide them through it all. But, you know, I think Fort Worth has a great future in front of it, too. And I'm excited to see where this town goes and how it develops even more. It's, you know, we all know it's still got room for growth and it's going to continue to grow. Yeah. You see that in the numbers over the past you know, three to five years. And I'm excited to see what kind of entertainment that we can bring, you know, entertainment that we can bring to all of Fort Worth. That's really important. But at the end of the day, it's about being a people person, you know, talking, communicating with your staff, telling them where they all are, showing opportunities of growth. I tell them all that, you know, at the end of the day, I'm still in the Matt Homan business. I got to do what's best for me and my family. I want them to do what's best for them and their family. It may be a Dickies arena. It may not. And I want to help them get there to whatever that goal is. And we talk about that a lot. Yeah. Hopefully it is at Dickies arena because we got a great staff. But, you know, at the end of the day, I want people to be successful. And I think that we're, we're on to something good here. I think that 22, fiscal year 22, which starts for us in November, it's going to be a great year. I think the rodeo is going to be great this year. It's going to probably be one of the most sought after tickets out there right now. Uh, tickets are on sale for that and been moving very quickly. Yep. So excited about that, what the rodeo is going to do. And then the concert season and entertainment schedule for 22 is really exciting. You're starting to see all the big shows want to go back out. They're all going to go out right away. And I assure you, we're going to surprise some people with the entertainment that we're going to bring to Fort Worth here in the next year. No, well-spoken. And, you know, your team is lucky to have you and you're lucky to have them. And as a fan and as also somebody as I think of as, as helping you guys along the way, manage through risk and thinking through it, it's great to be a part of the team. You guys keep kicking ass. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thanks for having me. And we appreciate everything you guys do. And, you know, it's a team and you got to rely on everyone around you. And that's really important. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.